0: With the scent of potpourri Films we commit to memory Crossing the felt ropes Watching from home on my TV Looking at all my eyes can see to tell me I obsessively. Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer. We're a weekly podcast that reviews one or two new release titles every episode with an occasional free for all segment at the end that we call Potpourri. You can find more of our work, including written reviews, full episode show notes, and the complete backlog of our episodes at obsessiveviewer.com. And you can also write into the show by emailing me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And if you'd like to support us and get access to hundreds of exclusive episodes, you can join our Patreon at patreon.comslash slash obsessive viewer where you can get access to uh, content at any of our tier levels on a recurring monthly subscription basis or you can buy individual collections a la carte in the patreon shop section uh, this week on Patreon, I'm continuing my Flanagan Fridays and Sci-Fi Saturdays series. Flanagan Fridays is now also available on the Stephen King tier as well, since Mike Flanagan is kind of um, Stephen King adjacent. I decided to make him available, make, make him available, make uh, make the uh, the Flanagan Friday series available to the Stephen King tier of Patreon. Um, with Sci-Fi Saturdays, I am a little bit behind. I am still working on foundation. Season two. Um, I'm one episode behind, so I'm going to record an episode about that uh, soon. So it won't be on Saturday, but you know, whatever. Um, So that is available at Patreon, and I have tons of other stuff over on Patreon as well. Not just the Flanagan Fridays and Sci-Fi Saturdays. I have a whole backlog of Stephen King short fiction reviews. I have got movie reviews, immediate reaction reviews, commentary tracks, uh, a whole bunch of stuff over on Patreon. So check that out if you like what you hear and you want to hear more. Content for me. Once again, you can sign up at patreoncom viewer for all that and a bunch more content. Um, I'm your host Matt Hurt, and you can find me on social media, which includes Letterboxed at the username of Obsessive Viewer. And in our featured review this week, I'll be reviewing Sony's latest non-Spider-Man Spider-Man movie, Madam Webb, which opened in theaters on February 14th. And for this week's secondary review, I'm going to be uh, sharing my thoughts on the new Netflix rom-com players. Which premiered on Netflix, also on February fourteenth, and uh, if it sounds weird today, um, that's because it's a solo episode this week, and I'm I have decided to dabble in uh, the live streaming sphere. So I have uh, I'm currently live streaming this recording, and I feel very awkward doing it. Um, And I cross posted it over to uh, Patreon, so people could be watching it on Patreon. I'm not sure, Um, but I have the YouTube live. Thing here now. And I have one viewer. So thank you, Jess, for, for watching it. Um, even though I know that Clarence and Marnie are also watching as well, uh, Jess's cats. Anyway, um, so that is what's new this week um, on the podcast um, and on Patreon. Uh, I also uh, want to share some recent stuff that I've done in terms of uh, reviews and everything. So recently on the website on obsessiveviewer.com, I have reviewed uh, Suncoast, which is currently streaming on. On Hulu. Um, and I also wrote a review of players, if you want to read my review of that. Um, elsewhere on TikTok and um, YouTube as well, I have done a bunch of videos about, uh, let's say, I did Green for Danger, uh, Roleplay, Brute Force, Nightmare Alley, the original, and Birth Rebirth. I have videos up on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, uh, just short form video content of that. So sh- uh, follow me on those platforms as well. And recently, I posted a video for the uh, my thoughts on the beekeeper, which I previously reviewed um a few weeks ago on the podcast um, but I uh, did an kind of an ex- extended video it's like two and a half minutes long um on YouTube and posted it so check that out on youtube and so, like I said, today on the show i'm going to be sharing my thoughts on Madam Webb and players before wrapping up with a popery section. Um, at the end. So it's a it's going to be a stacked show. But before I get to the reviews for the evening, I am going to uh, go through a few things, uh, a few news items from um, the entertainment world, just like a couple of little bits and pieces here. Um, first up is that the Fantastic Four cast was revealed. Um, so it was announced that Pedro Pascal, uh, Vanessa Kirby, Joseph Quinn and Eben Moss Bacharach, Bacharach, Backrock um are going to be the titular Fantastic Four um and I wish that I could care about any of this <laughs> like if this is going to be a common thread throughout this entire episode that I really wish that I could care about comic book movies um anymore I just I just don't have the capacity to really care about them since Endgame I feel like the um the entire like world of um of, of comic book movies has just reached that plateau and has gone downhill since then for a variety of reasons. So even like the top tier stuff or the things that I should or could be excited about, I'm really not that excited about because it's just, it's not, it's not worth being excited about. So for instance, like the MCU, they have the whole like multiverse saga that's currently going on with the multiverse saga. I, like, I was predisposed to like that. I was predisposed to be interested in it and be, um, excited about it. But aside from Spider-Man No Way Home and, uh, I guess, tangentially a little bit uh, excited about, uh, Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness, aside from those two, and I guess Loki season one, I just don't care about the multiverse saga. And it doesn't help that, um, that they have, that they had, uh, Jonathan Majors playing Kang and then that whole thing happened. Um, but even then, like, even if, even if they had someone else or even if, uh, even if their actor for Kang did not get into uh, like uh, legal trouble, I still would not. I would still be fighting to be interested in the multiverse saga, and by extension, I also can't get myself that. I can't. I can't. I don't find myself being that excited about the idea of of James Gunn spearheading the DCU on the DC side of things, even though DC characters. I really enjoy like I really like DC characters. Um I think that yeah, like I just I'm the bubble has burst with comic book movies. Um and that's kind of a a bummer. So as much as the Fantastic 4 could be interesting or could be exciting I don't really have the capacity to really, uh, be that interested in it. And Paige has joined the live stream. Hey Paige. Um, I, earlier I said that I don't like, I, I don't know what I'm doing with this live stream thing. So thank you for, (laughs) um, uh, joining and watching. And I can't see if anyone on Patreon has watched unless they're watching it on YouTube. So, um, yeah, anyway. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, we'll see what the Fantastic Four has in store for us, um, the cast is good. I really like the cast of Pedro Pascal, Vanessa Kirby, Joseph Quinn, and Eben Moss Bachrach. Uh Joseph Quinn in particular, I'm pretty excited about. And of course, Pedro Pascal, everyone loves him. Uh, so I'm excited for, for that as well. Um, elsewhere in the... Um, Elsewhere in the uh, uh, world of movie news and everything, um, this is going to be a quick one, but Christopher Nolan um, has said that he would love to make a horror film, and he's looking for a really exceptional idea. And I just wanted to bring this up because this is a particularly interesting kind of development for Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker. Um, The idea that he wants to make a horror film has me particularly pretty excited because the entire gymnasium sequence of uh, Oppenheimer was phenomenal. Like that in itself was like its own condensed horror film unto itself. So that has me very curious to see what he would do with like a, a, a big budget or well, yeah, big budget, um, horror movie. Um, what I'm not too excited about is the how, like if, or how it will incorporate his trademarks that I feel have already gotten a little, I've gotten a little bit tired of, um, recently things like just the nonlinear structure, um the kind of way that his movies always end with things kind of coming together like i don't know it just it just seems a little bit like he's a little set in his ways and i think that if he were to pivot to horror um i would hope that this would be an opportunity for him to do more do do something different do something more um do something more kind of uh not bigger but but have it be something that's a little bit I don't know, a little bit more special or a little bit more thought out rather than uh, something that's more appealing as a concept, like something like Tenet. Um, So we'll see what he does there. Um, But I don't know. It just feels like it might be... We'll we'll see. We'll see. I'll reserve judgment. But it's interesting enough that Christopher Nolan wants to make a horror film. Um, I don't know when or if he'll do that. Um, But it's, it's just interesting to note. Um the other two things I want to talk about before I get into my review of Madam Webb is uh that the Super Bowl happened uh at this point like a couple of weeks ago. Um with the Super Bowl obviously like the big commercial stuff happens and they uh release a bunch of trailers throughout the Super Bowl. Um and I didn't watch hardly any of them. Um I just kind of didn't really have that much interest. I've kind of gone away from watching trailers themselves um, because I just kind of feel like they're a little bit spoilery and I'm going to be watching as much stuff as I can over the year anyway. So I should probably just steer clear of trailers and watch the things as they come out. So I didn't watch that many of the trailers. However, I did watch two of them and I kind of want to talk about them. And it's going to be a little bit of a rehash of, of stuff that's going to be ta- that I'm going to be talking about throughout this entire episode. But uh, the first one is Deadpool and Wolverine. And I'm going to actually play a little clip from the trailer here. The people in the live stream are not going to be able to see it because it's not a video. But here's the audio of a part of the Deadpool and Wolverine trailer. Whoa, 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 Is that supposed to be scary? Pegging isn't new for me, friendo but it is for Disney. Mr. Wilson, you appear to have soiled yourself while unconscious. I wasn't unconscious. Who are you? Why am I here? Walk with me. Wait, you are special. This is your chance to be a hero among heroes. I smell what you're stepping in sensei. Your little cinematic universe is about to change forever. So that was a clip from Deadpool and Wolverine, which I believe is directed by Sean Levy. Um, it's coming out in July, I think of this year. um, and again, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> I don't really care um uh, all that much about it. Yes, the pegging line was was pretty funny, um especially with it talking about Disney. That's pretty entertaining that's 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 pretty fun. but I feel like the trailer overall didn't really do much to convey the funness of Deadpool aside from that line and maybe a couple others in in the um in the trailer it just seemed a little bit tame um from what what i've come to expect from a deadpool movie and i do wish that they would have shown at least a little bit more of of Hugh Jackman as wolverine but that's you know it's a trailer it's a it's a reveal trailer basically so it's not going to show much of anything really Um, but the, the, the pagan line is good. And then the, toward the end of the trailer, there is a clip of like a big action set piece that, uh, people have pointed out that it's obviously in the back, like the background is of like the, a destroyed, uh, 20th century Fox, like logo of like the pyramid thing. That is the logo for 20th century Fox. Um, which I think is fun. And I think that there is potential for this to be a very entertaining, MCU movie, um. In particular, I think that it's interested that it would be interesting as an ode to like the end of like all of these other properties and bringing together like everything into the MCU as much as they can. Like like bringing Deadpool in and bringing all of the other characters from past stuff, either completely doing away with them or uh, bringing them into the fold of the MCU. Um. Having said that, the TVA stuff, like, it's weird because I was a fan of Loki season one. I did a whole review of Loki season one earlier on the podcast at some point. But I, like, I would never watched Loki season two. And I feel like that was not really, it, it wasn't necessarily, um, it wasn't really shit on all that much, but I do think that it, there was a little bit of a downgrade in terms of, uh, people not liking it when it came out, uh, Loki season two. So I kind of avoided it and I don't know, I'll go back and watch it before, probably before Deadpool, I guess. I probably, I don't know if I'll do any Patreon stuff, but anyway, maybe I will, who knows? So anyway, um, that is Deadpool and Wolverine. It could. Be fun. I'm reserving judgment. I'm not sure that I'm a big fan of Sean Levy as a director. I know that he did um the Adam project for Netflix, and that was fine. Um so we'll see. I don't know, we'll see. But anyway, uh the Deadpool and Wolverine trailer. The other trailer that I saw from the Super Bowl that I was interested in seeing was uh Twisters. So I'm going to play a clip from the trailer for Twisters and then uh, come back and share my thoughts on it. So here we go. Clip from the trailer for Twisters. It's Tyler Owens. Calls himself the Tornado Wrangler. If you feel it, Jason. I said, if you feel it, Jason. it! Perfect! She's gorgeous. You thought you could destroy a tornado. We never had a chance. You want one? Alright, so that was from the trailer for Twisters. Um, which okay, so Twisters is something that I'm I'm mild I'm I'm I have a vested interest in. Um, because the original movie Twister from like 1997 or whenever, that was one of my like favorite movies. When I was a kid, when I was like in, oh God, when I was in like third, second, third grade, um, I had this weird obsession with tornadoes. Like I lived in, at the time I lived in Ohio, um, and like we, like anytime there were thunderstorms, I would just be fascinated by the idea of tornadoes as terrifying as that could be. I was just obsessed with tornadoes. And then in like fourth grade, I had a project about tornadoes that the, the, my friend who was um, doing the project with me did not do anything with it. <laughs> did not do, did not participate at all, which kind of pissed me off. But anyway, um, so Twister, I remember seeing Twister, the original movie in the theater and being just obsessed with it and watching it. Like when it hit like VHS, um, and watching it over and over again. I have a very, very um I have very fond memories of Twister. So knowing that they're coming out with Twisters, um, which is apparently, according to Glenn Powell, not a um it's not a direct sequel to Twister. From the sound of it, it's it's apparently not um it's not going to have like any any connection to the original movie, which is fine. Um that is i don't know that that's whatever but so it's not going to be like a legacy sequel which is probably good um but this trailer weirdly enough did not excite me all that much for twisters which i feel like this whole episode i'm going to be just a downer for the entire episode but basically the trailer for twisters didn't really do much for me and that's like it didn't do much for me i don't know how much of like the visual effects are unfinished but they didn't really impress me all that much. They didn't really do anything to convey necessarily the story um which is kind of a problem for me. Like like I'm sure that when we get like a bigger trailer and or when the movie comes out, we'll have more to go on. But from the sound of it, like it's selling Glenn Powell as like they refer to him as a tornado wrangler and how he's kind of this hotshot guy which just makes me think of like Top Gun Maverick you know, or the original Top Gun um, which that's a formula that could work with you know a Storm Chaser movie I do like in the trailer where uh, Glenn Powell Uh, stops and he has the the spike go into the ground to keep the keep the car in place while the tornado is coming that's pretty interesting and and innovative Um, the other thing that I did that I did notice as well in the trailer that I think is interesting given Glenn Powell's statements about the movie not being really connected to the original movie is that Dorothy is there like the actual like apparatus that they used in the original movie is present in the trailer for twisters and i don't know if that's going to be a thing where it's like oh yeah this is the technology that we have from you know 20 30 years ago when um when these people uh were chasing storms and everything uh so i don't know we'll see how that goes we'll see what um happens there but i'm i'm cautiously interested in twisters um and yeah we'll we'll see how it goes um, that's all the news that I have before the reviews for the evening. So um, that's all the news I have. I'll put links in the show notes for all of this. Again, those show notes are, I didn't say this before, so no, not again, but <laughs> the show notes can be found at obsessiveviewer.com OV416. Um, and let's go ahead and go into our featured review of the evening. Um, it's going to be for Madam Webb, which is currently in theaters. Um, it opened on Valentine's Day on February 14th. 14th. Um, of course I'm going to do a non-spoiler review and then go into a spoiler review. I'll, uh, I'll note the spoiler section with a clip from the trailer later on. And if you want to navigate timestamps away from it, check out the show notes at obsessiveviewer.com slash OV416. So Madam Webb is the latest Sony non-Spider-Man, Spider-Man movie. Um, my understanding of it is that Sony bought up all the rights to Marvel characters in the late 90s when Marvel was destitute and was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um and when they got the rights to them, they held on to a lot of them and with the rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe um and Marvel Studios um Marvel has started buying back the the uh the um the rights. And my understanding is that in order for Sony to keep the rights to Spider-Man, they have to have a Spider-Man related movie come out every few years. And I don't know if that falls under like Madam Webb as well, because they've been doing this whole thing with like um Morbius and Venom and now Madam Webb, and then coming up Craven the Hunter, where they have these villain characters or or side characters. Uh, from the Sony, from or from the Spider Man universe that they're making movies about, and that's certainly an idea um, that has not been that successful. Um, aside from Venom, which is campy, fun, over the top, silly, um, but also ultimately not that good or memorable. Um but aside from that they've got I mean and they've got the Spider-Man stuff that they're co-doing with the Marvel with Marvel Studios so that's working out pretty okay. Um but these side spin-off movies with characters that are villains of Spider-Man in worlds without Spider-Man don't really work all that well for me. So uh, so yeah, so let me go ahead and go into Madam Webb. Uh, the premise, according to IMDb is Cassandra Webb is a New York, uh, uh, a New York metropolis paramedic who begins to demonstrate signs of clairvoyance forced to challenge, uh, revelations about her past. She needs to safeguard three young women from a deadly adversary who wants them destroyed director for this movie was SJ Clarkson. Writers were Matt Zazima. Uh, or Sazama Burke Sharpless Claire Parker and SJ Clarkson and the cast includes Dakota Johnson Sidney Sweeney Isabella Merst uh, Celeste O'Connor and Tahar Rahim and now I'm going to do a non-spoiler review and then I'll do a spoiler review later but I here's the thing so this movie has been shat on pretty extensively throughout the entire time it's been out which is at this point like less than a week um, people are dragging it very severely. And honestly, it's, it's, it is that like, that's what the movie is. It is worth being dragged that bad. It is not a good movie. It's very, very uh, terribly made, really. There's some really terrible editing, but also the plot and the level to which the plot does not move throughout basically the entire movie is very, very problematic. it makes it it's it's very annoying it's very frustrating, and the stakes in this movie are so like just nebulous and and not really that well constructed and then when you throw in when you throw into that kind of mess all of these like very forced awkward uh non references to spider man. It really really makes it for makes makes it out to be a very bad, bad movie um, so i 'm going to do my best to not completely shit on the movie, but i don 't know if i 'm going to have a lot of kind things to say about it. Um, I will say this though this just this is a this is just an aside that has nothing to do with the actual movie and had no bearing on my enjoyment of the movie or lack thereof but Uh, I do want to mention that I saw this at a 1245 um, screening uh, movie, but I, I went to the theater at 1245 on a Sunday and I'm looking at my letterbox now to see how many times I have tagged the word theater. Um, Because every time I go to the movie theater, I tag it with theater. So I have tagged 582 movies with theater on Letterboxd. So that means that I have watched, at least since 2007, 580, however many movies in the theater. This was the first time ever that I accidentally went to a screening at the theater that had open captions which is just like, it just has like closed captions on the screen during the movie. And it didn't distract from the movie at all for me, for me. And in fact, it was kind of, it's kind of neat. Cause like I'm, I'm not one of those people that watches uh, like closed captions all the time when I'm watching stuff at home, but watching it in the theater was kind of neat. Cause like, it, I don't know, it was a, it was a different experience, but I thought it was weird that this is the first time ever that I've just accidentally ended up at an open caption screening. So, that's a little aside so the movie opens with uh this this terrible like prologue like the whole prologue of the movie is just um Cass's mother in uh in Peru in the Amazon Hunting Spiders there's that famous line from the trailer um he knew my mother while she was uh researching spiders in the Amazon or whatever which that, that line does not appear in the movie by the way there is no post credit scene there's no there's no mid credit scene in this movie so if you do go see the movie don't bother waiting through the through the credits um because there's nothing there so um it starts with this very just bland prologue of 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 Cass's mother uh researching spiders just this exposition dump of like oh yeah these spiders are like we need to find these spiders because they have these properties and we need to we need to do this and that and everything and then of course ezekiel sims who is like her like partner in this or he's working with her ends up betraying her and killing her and then Cass is born. Uh so that's the kind of long and short of the prologue and it's just so like there's more to it like the introduction of the spider people um, which are just people that have powers of spiders um coming down it's like this this kind of tribe in in the in the Amazon that they come down and they basically they don't save Cass's mother but they they give birth to or they they allow her to give birth to Cass and that's how Cass is born. But it's just this very awkward, stilted exposition dump of like, oh, OK, yeah, well, when she comes back to find us, we'll I'll, I'll I promise I'll tell her everything or I'll give her all the knowledge that she needs. That's just setting up this other exposition dump uh, later in the movie. And throughout the entire movie, there are just these exposition dumps throughout them that just really does not does not work well at all um and then we get the most arbitrary um timestamp of of the movie it's that this movie takes place in 2003 i don't understand the need for it to take place in 2003 i don't understand why that needed to be a thing um but it's kind of it sticks out like a sore thumb because we get like uh, just flashes of like, oh, there's a blockbuster. And then later in the movie, we get like um, uh, a guy like looking at what looks like a smartphone that hasn't been invented yet. So it's just such an arbitrary thing that they don't really keep track of. But basically in the quote unquote present day in 2003, um, Cass is a paramedic and her partner is this man named Ben. Oh my God. My voice cracked. Um, (laughs) uh, her partner is a guy named Ben Parker, um, who is of course, uncle Ben in the future. So they have, just like the, there's not much development of her as a paramedic she's racing through the city uh trying to save someone that's in the back that that Ben is is working on and the editing in this scene like this is the first like big action scene um where she is driving the ambulance through through New York streets um and there is so much just scattered editing and just nonsensical editing that it just feels so disengaging to to the audience it shows like it doesn't it's disorienting is the word I was thinking of um it's so disorienting and it just feels like okay like right off the bat we're like we're in for a bad time here and then we get more (laughs) <laughs> more more goofy stuff like there's a whole thing where Cass uh drowns and that's when she starts seeing visions and I promise I'm not going to go point by point through the whole movie but when she comes back that that's another kind of reach of a of a establishing the time the timeline and the the timestamp of 2003 um uh as the setting of the movie is where she's being kind of resuscitated by Ben and then There's just this completely arbitrary line where she's like, "Okay, are we done here? I need to go home and watch Idol because it's 2003, and I need to make sure that the audience knows that it's that it's 2003 and not you know 2024 or any other time. I need to go watch Idol, and like if they had a reason to set it in 2003, sure, I would go along with it. I'd be fine with it, but." just feels so unnecessary because nothing comes into play to make it worthy of being 2003. In fact, when Ezekiel Sims gets like access to, um, gets access to this technology that is like facial recognition software and like this whole like big brother thing, it feels so dumb because it doesn't make any sense like why this technology would exist then and it's not like the movie's smart enough to be making a statement about um about like like the era of like post 9/11 New York like if the movie had taken a more sincere um tract with setting it in 2003 in New York City and showcasing this technology that would invade the privacies of everyone on the planet if used in the wrong hands um, as a kind of extension of like the things that people were talking about in the early 2000s, like the Patriot Act and uh, the NSA surveillance. Like if it made any statement about that, that would be more interesting. But instead, this is just an arbitrary thing where it's just like, OK, well, we need the villain to have to 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 track down the three future spider women Um, so let's just give him this technology and not bother explaining, uh, what it is or bother explaining like the purpose of his person in the chair who's assisting him. Let's just make him this evil person, which is, which does bring me to the entire thing with Ezekiel Sims. Um, first of all, Tahar Rahim, I have no idea what accent he's trying to do. I like it is, it was very jarring because it's like this weird, uh, I, I can't even place it. I don't know if that's his natural accent, but the, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. It just looked like it was, it sounded like he was trying something and it was failing miserably. But the entire crux of the movie is that he needs to find these teenagers who will grow up to become spider women who will eventually lead to his death because he can see into the future And he can see that they are Spider-Women who, like, every night he's plagued by the dream of his death. Which I'll talk about some of that in spoilers spoilers later. But basically, he has these daily visions of being murdered by these three women in Spider-Man costumes. Um, And his whole point is that now in 2003, he needs to track them down while they're teenagers and murder them. Um, to prevent his death, and it's just such a flimsy it's it's a very very flimsy plot for a villain because it just it just it's something that is directly told to us really it's told to multiple people, and it's not anything that feels like there's any weight to his motivation. it's just like this self preservation um arc that he's going through is just something that is told to us and told to multiple people and it's just not given any kind of emotional weight there's nothing really tying him to it it's just a vessel for him to do evil evil villain things um and then that leads him to get that technology which is just so dumb it's so dumb because like he gets the technology and then he like the scene where the like one of the first scenes with him and his like person in the chair who's assisting him with everything is him saying like, like her, her saying to him, uh, like, okay. So judging from your, uh, your descriptions of these women in the, in your dreams, this is what they look like. Like, this is how they look in your visions as far as you can recollect. And it's just photographs of them. (laughs) Like it is just, it is just a picture of them with their, with their masks on. And then it's like, can we, and I think to like Ezekiel, I think he says something like, can you, can you, can you de-age them and make them like, like uh, take the masks off them? And he, she does. And it's just like another just photograph of them (laughs) in their makeup as teenagers in this movie. Um, believe it or not, that is not the worst offending thing. Like there's so, there's so much more here. Um, but I do want to mention something from the trailer, um, that is in this movie that is so, it, it made me think. So here's the thing. When I went into this movie, I did not know that it was going to be set in 2003. I had no idea that it was a period piece in that sense. I didn't know that that's what was going on. So there's a point in the trailer where, Cass is on the subway and she is, uh, she starts seeing a vision of Ezekiel coming in and killing the teenagers, um, in the subway car. And the kind of start of that is this man in, in the subway car sitting down, looking at a phone that hasn't been invented yet saying, uh, saying, man, New York is a whole new level of crazy these days. And like, it's just like so weird to me that, it's like, it's, I don't know. It, it's weird to me that he's saying this like less than two years after 9-11. Like it feels like it should be like a commentary on New York city after 9-11, but also it's not because it's just like, it's just this completely innocuous non sequitur thing that is used as a trigger to showcase Cassie's, um, her visions and, and to kind of, to kind of tell us that like, Oh yeah, these visions, um, are here. Um, this is like the start of her vision. So each iteration of that vision starts with him saying New York is a whole new level of crazy. And I'm like, yeah, it is because, you know, it's two years after 9-11 and you have a smartphone that hasn't been invented yet, guy. Um, like, I want to see this guy's movie. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So from there, the whole like everything just goes just completely nonsensical. Um I like I'm not I'm not going to spend too much time in non-spoilers talking about this because there's a lot of issues with this. But basically what happens is that Cass has to basically protect these three teenagers from Ezekiel Sims. And she doesn't understand why he's doing this. She, She doesn't understand why they're important. She just knows that she needs to protect them, which is a good like this is a good avenue for a, um, hero arc this is a good area for the hero arc to kind of unfold like yes i'm thrust into this thing because i have these visions of these young girls being murdered so i need to protect them i don't know why and i don't know what the purpose of it is but i need to protect them that is a noble effort that is something worthy of like a spider-man universe uh, superhero um but the movie doesn't do anything with that it doesn't do that it doesn't follow that to any, any logical conclusion aside from being this, uh, this way to showcase that like, oh yeah, Cass, Cassie is not a very responsible person. So now she's suddenly responsible for three young women. And isn't that goofy? Isn't that weird? Um, it's just, it's just so lifeless and, and dumb. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just in, and, and there are, there are certain things that just that happen in there that just really, really I'll talk about in spoilers. But the long and short of it is that Madam Webb goes down some avenues that do not make any sense. The action that happens isn't that interesting. The movie doesn't do anything very interesting with her clairvoyance or with like the visions that she has like anytime she has a vision and then they have to escape from whatever like turmoil they have found themselves in, um, there's nothing very engaging on an action front, um, post those visions. So the visions always depict like something like not some fairly gruesome violence against these women. Um, and then, goes from there it goes to like oh we need to leave the scene we need to make sure that we get away from this guy um that's all well and good but there's nothing too uh energetic about their fleeing the scenes um or leaving and trying to get away and then from there it just becomes exposition dump exposition dump exposition dump um until the finale which is like a big wet fart um so That is a non-spoiler review of Madam Web. Um, I'm going to go into a spoiler review of Madam Web here in a second. But overall, I ended up rating this one star on Letterboxd, which you can follow me at uh, letterboxd.com slash viewer. But yeah, it's just it's 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 really, really a forced like nothing of an action or comic book action movie. And again, the 2003 kind of establishing, like, time frame is so awkwardly done. Like, there is the whole... There's this whole sequence where it's scored to Britney Spears' Toxic. And they're, like, on the freaking radio, like, the song is playing and then on the radio, the DJ has this, like, moment where the movie is has to remind us that, oh, this is taking place in 2003. So the DJ needs to say, like, this is almost verbatim. The DJ says... Like, oh yeah, this, this song is going to be a huge hit. I can just tell it's Britney Spears toxic. And it's just so, it's so dumb and so forced. Um, yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and go into spoilers for Madam Web for those on the live stream. I'm going to show pizza that is right next to me. So there's pizza. Um, yeah, she is my producer this evening. So I'm going to go ahead and go into spoilers. I'm so sorry I did that. Uh, spoilers for Madam Web coming up now. I'm going to play a clip from the trailer. Um, if you want to navigate away from spoilers, check the show notes for timestamps. Those show notes, again, are at obsessiveviewer.com slash OV416. Um, and when I come back, I'm going to be spoiling Madam Web. A week ago, I spent my life racing against time. Help you out today, okay? Trying to save people who are running out of it. Getty! Until one moment changed everything. Come on! <laughs> Welcome back to the land that we're living. I don't understand what's happening. I've been having visions. I knew he was gonna die. I think I'm seeing the future. York is a whole new level of crazy these days. What do you want for me? Okay, so spoilers on for Madam Webb. And here's the thing. So I again I went to a 1245 um screening on a Sunday and there were three people in the or I think only two two more people in the in the screening with me they were seated like a few rows in front of me i was in the back row and so i took notes throughout it because it's and like the notes were just like just like groaning notes so i'm going to kind of go through some of them here but first of all i want to talk about adam scott playing ben parker um he just seems very disengaged with it as most everyone in this movie feels just like they're not into they're not into the, they're not into the movie. And that's also evident by Dakota Johnson's press, uh, press run, um, (laughs) throughout it. Like she is, she's been stopping short of just dragging the movie itself, but she just seems so disinterested in actually promoting the movie because I feel like she knows what kind of movie this is. Um, and there's rumors or there's, there's conjecture that she's, she was, she was maybe duped into the movie or she was under the impression that this was going to be like a big MCU movie and without understanding that it's, you know, MCU adjacent or it's the Sony non Spider-Man, Spider-Man cinematic universe. Um, which I, I don't know the ins and outs of that. I'm not, I'm not, I am i do not really care to get into, but, um, but that just seems like, uh, it, I don't know. It just seems like uh, it, but it bothers me a little bit that she's so blasé about the uh about the promotional aspect of it because if she signed up for the movie at least see it through to that and then trash it afterwards but from what i understand like after the first trailer came out like she dumped her talent agency or whatever and went to a different uh a different uh rep um yeah so i I don't know i don't know the ins and outs of that but anyway um adam scott though he plays Uncle Ben before he's an uncle, and there. One of the funniest things about this movie, like this movie, is terrible, and it's not unint like it's not, it's not really so bad. It's good. It's just it's just a very bad movie, and that's that's a shame. It sucks. It sucks that it's just a bad movie because at least there could be some enjoyment in it. Um, but the things that are in- enjoyable in it are. <laughs> kind of pretty, pretty enjoyable. So there is uh, this whole thing where I'm I'm under the assumption that Sony is not legally allowed to say the name Peter Parker or Spider-Man in these movies. That's my understanding. And the reason that I have that understanding is not because I've looked into it or anything. It's because they do not say Spider-Man or Peter Parker in this movie. And what is so weird to me is that Mary... Is pregnant with Peter Parker. And there are a multitude of lines that are just like so awkwardly hinting at the at the Spider-Man lore that it just sticks out so badly. It's so, it's so lame. So, um, for instance, there's a baby shower with Mary Parker, and she is uh or Mary Park. I don't know. Yeah, anyway. Um so <laughs> she there's a baby shower for her and like throughout the baby shower they are asking like the, like one of the games is like guess what name we've picked for this kid and like the game stops before they guess the name and then later in the movie when the baby is born they don't say the name and i'm like why point to that like what wh- like why call attention to the fact that you allegedly or apparently are unable to say the name Peter Parker in the movie why draw so much attention to the name of the baby when you can't say the name of the baby and also like when they're talking about the spider people from the, from the from the amazon it's like when they're in the subway station and they are being kind of um hounded by the spider people they were like oh he's he's crawling he can crawl on the ceiling like some kind of spider person and it's it's like it's not a line that's read for comedy. It's not like this meta humor thing where it's like we're gonna say Spider-Man, but we're actually gonna say Spider Person. It's like it's like there is literally a block where they can't say Spider-Man in the movie. And it just really, really sticks out very, very badly. Um, But then later in the movie, and I'm gonna jump around a little bit and I apologize for that, but later in the movie when Mary gives birth to Peter and it's kind of in the denouement of the movie. The teenagers, the the three future spider women are talking to Cass, and they're like, uh, they're like, oh yeah, Ben's really excited about being an uncle. And uh, and then another one says something like, yo, yeah, all of the um, all of the all of the fun and none of the responsibility. And then Madam Webb says, like, well, that's what he thinks. And then, like, with a wink to the camera just about and I'm like that that is only servicing the audience who knows Spider-Man lore but also it's like what what is the joke <laughs> like like it's like oh yeah that's what he thinks wink his sister and her husband are going to be killed and he is also going to be killed at some point and that's going to give birth to the Spider-Man and give him like all of this like sense of duty and everything like it's just and like it would be different if Cass wasn't directly linked to Uncle Ben in that they are friends they work together and they they are very close to one another and just like for her to be so just blase about it like oh yeah he his whole family is gonna die and he's gonna have to take care of um take care of his nephew in the future but he's also gonna die it's just it's so nonsensical and weird and weird um but the two biggest things that I that I just I could not reconcile with this movie in terms of the writing and the way that the plot moves, is that there are two instances where the movie just breaks down entirely. So it's after the subway scene where Ezekiel's going after the teenagers because again he knows that in the future they are going to kill him, so he is going to go and murder them before they can do that. He says that directly to the n s a uh lady that he seduces um which he then poisons and kills like you didn't need to seduce her to do it like she had the key card or like you could have just. Coerced her into getting the into getting the password. Um, you didn't have to sleep with her, but that's a whole other thing. But anyway, he um, he gets the, <laughs> uh, he gets the technology and then finds them and then is able to track them and everything. Um, but after that subway scene, um, immediately uh like Sydney Sweeney's character i think her name was Julia she thinks that Cass is kidnapping them so then they get alerted to the police and then she Cass steals a steals a taxi and then drives them out into the wilderness and then here's here's the first thing that i just hated i hated about this movie was that she has just saved these three teenagers from a a horrific event in which they were almost murdered And her, the thing that she, like during the drive, they are confused and thinking that they're, that she's abducting them. They hear the news on the radio say very conveniently, like, oh, a 30 year old woman has just abducted three teenagers from the subway. So they are now on the run. They are now like, she is now a fugitive basically. And she's just stolen a taxi cab. So her, her, like uh, the the thing that she chooses to do is drive them into the middle of the woods, and then as there as there's more exposition dump, and as she's saying like, oh, I had this vision, and you know, you guys aren't safe and everything, so uh, like you, we need to we need to work together to figure this out. She's then she says, stay here for three hours. I'm gonna go and look into things and see what's going on. Just stay here for three hours and don't leave. Like, okay, teenagers, I just abducted. Stay here in the middle of nowhere with no food or water or anything for three hours while I go. Like, you just met me and you just saw me steal a taxi. I'm going to drive somewhere for three hours, research everything, and come back within three hours and we'll reconvene. What? Like, that, that makes no sense. It makes no sense and it took me out of the movie. And then... It freaking happens again in a bigger way. So like after she finds out that it's due to her mother and and researching spiders and how Ezekiel was there and blah, 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 she then again, mind you, this is like two days later, she takes them to... Ben and his sister, his pregnant sister, um and he she basically just unloads them on 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 him and she's like I'll be back in a week. I need to go to Peru to research the spider people and figure out what's going on. Like what even is this movie? Like what exactly is this movie because it's not entertaining. It's not well thought out this doesn't even feel like it's written in a way that like this doesn't feel like this was tried this is an attempt to salvage a a poor script from in in the edit it's just like it's like it's paced that way intentionally and it's so annoying because it's just like suddenly it's like oh yeah yeah coworker who uh with with the pregnant about to pop sister whose husband is away like on business and in in another continent. uh, I'm going I'm a fugitive from justice. I'm going to leave these three teenagers who I am purported to have abducted with you so that I can fly to Peru for a week and figure out what's going on. And like the fact that this is the second time in the movie that she has left the teenagers to go research things it just feels like it could have and should have been done in any number of different ways like have them included in into it and have like th- that could have been a whole other action sequence when she left them in the woods they could she could have taken them taken them with her and then Ezekiel could have found them and attacked them there and then they would have had a whole other action set piece instead in that moment they go to a diner and then Um, they go to a, to a diner and then in like, in like movie logic, teen fashion, they start talking to these cute boys that are in a corner booth and then they start dancing on the table, drawing attention to themselves in the most asinine way possible. And it's just, it's, and I know that that's what Britney Spears does to people. I know that that's what Toxic does to people. I sang Toxic at karaoke at one point when I was very, very drunk, um, so I get it. But also if I was, you know, presumed to have been abducted and am under, like, am told to stay put by the person who abducted me, who also saved my life, probably wouldn't go to, um, probably wouldn't, probably wouldn't go to, to, um, a diner or probably couldn't, uh, I would probably be a little bit more, um, uh, nervous. Uh, Jess in the chat said, do it again, which I presume to mean, <laughs> uh, sing toxic. So no, I no because I'm sober right now. <laughs> so I can't, uh, and they said encore. Nice. Uh, yeah, no, I can't. It was bad. And then immediately after, immediately after I did that, it was, it was terrible. Um, uh, a guy who I went to high school with, like was suddenly like there and he's like, Hey, how's it going? I was like, Oh my God, I'm, like in my early to mid twenties and everything I'm afraid of everything, and like this person just that I know just saw me drunkenly sing karaoke, but anyway um so that was that was really frustrating uh the whole everything about this movie <laughs> um and one of the things I keep thinking about is how this movie does explore so many different New York City landmarks um like a blockbuster because it's 2003, um, the subway because it's New York city. And of course that timeless, timeless, uh, that, that timeless landmark of New York city, the Pepsi Cola fireworks warehouse, um, which what, (laughs) like the finale of this movie takes place on a big, like warehouse that is established earlier that it's filled with fireworks because the movie like introduces us to like the big set piece of her having a vision that results in someone's death is at a fire at a warehouse. And there's this weird, just completely throwaway line that comes into play later where uh, they say like, oh, no, this whole place is like a tinderbox because it's filled wall to wall with explosives and it's just a bunch of fireworks. So we need to get it under control. Um, and so in that moment, I was like, that, that had nothing to do with it. Like, what was the point of the fireworks in the burning building? And in my head, I just kept thinking about the Simpsons and the whole, like, when are they going to go to the fireworks factory? Um, but then as soon as it came into play later, I was like, okay, that's setting up the final, like, climax of the movie, fine, whatever. But the... When we get there, like getting to that point later in the movie is so cumbersome and it just feels like it just, it, I don't know, it just, it, it feels just so dumb, so dumb. But I, I kind of lost my train of thought there for a second, to be honest. Um, oh my God. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so the climax of the movie takes place at the Pepsi Cola fireworks warehouse. Oh, okay. The the initial part where she sees the vision of her coworker dying in in the ambulance. Um, O'Neil played by I think Mike Epps, um, he is driving away from the scene because he has like a whole other like he he's called to another scene or something, and Cassie tries to get him out of the out of the ambulance. She's like, Hey, you know, I have a bad feeling, let me drive. Um, and he's like, no, you need to stay here and everything. So then he goes and then immediately it gets T-boned and and dies. And it's something that um it's something that feels very like uh, like I wrote in my notes that it's a wet fart of a scene. Like it lands with no no sense of tragedy or any kind of tension in it at all. It is just something that just happens. And it's to, it's to escalate the plot or it's to advance the plot and establish that she now knows that she can see the future, but it just happens so suddenly. And it's not like a shock value thing. It's just like this thing where we know what's going to happen and it happens. And it just feels like that is the epitome of the entire movie overall because things just happen just to happen like in the finale in the fireworks warehouse the pepsi cola fireworks warehouse um because it just adds a big pepsi cola sign and i'm just like what what branding like why but anyway so they the in that sequence one of the teenagers i can't even remember her name um she says like she she has a skateboard earlier in the movie And there is a moment in this freaking climax of a movie uh, of the movie where she slides down like one of the scaffoldings of the sign for Pepsi um, with like this piece of debris that's shaped like a skateboard. And it's like, oh, that's why she has the skateboard, because that establishes that she can skateboard. And now she's sliding down this thing to evade uh, to avoid danger, because it's a uh, cause it's like a skateboard. She has those skills and it's just so dumb. It's so dumb. And there's another thing like, uh, one of the other girls has a, um, what was it? Oh my God. I can't remember exactly how, um, how this comes into play, but she has a shirt that says, I eat math for breakfast. And then, Later, when she come when when we come back to them in the woods before they go to the diner, she's doing like a Sudoku book, and it's like okay, she likes math, and that comes into play like she does, like she does some very rudimentary math when talking uh, when talking to Cass. I think it's when they're teaching her C teaching when she's teaching them CPR. I don't know, but anyway, it's just very low effort connections in the script to pay off. At the end, and none of them pay off in any in any compelling ways because they're not set up properly and they're not done well at all. Um, so let me talk about Peru because Cass does go on a trip to Peru, and she does meet the guy who told her mother that when she comes back, she is going like I'm gonna tell her everything, I'll make sure she knows everything. So she learns everything from this guy, and The movie just if the movie hadn't already ground to a halt earlier, it would have like ground to even more of a halt at this point because it is just a late, late, late stage exposition dump again. And like there are just so many moments in this movie where the exposition is just like vomited upon us. And it happens so much throughout the movie in place of like, in place of setting up like big set pieces or even compelling action or comedy set pieces there. Um, instead of doing that, it just has like these exposition dumps. So the Spider-Man guy, or I'm sorry, the Spider-Person guy tells Cass that like, oh yeah, you know, your mother was shot by Ezekiel Sims. So We saved her and then saved you. And then also in the process, uh, Cass learns like the reason why her mother was doing that was to save her because she had in the womb, like a a neurological disorder that, that Cass's mother was trying to, was trying to um, cure. And in doing that, like in that scene, it's like established. And again, this is two thirds of the way through the movie. It's established in that scene that Cass has a ton of anger toward her mother at no other point in this movie did Cassie ever say or communicate or intimate to the audience, no, nor did the movie intimate to us that she had held any kind of grudge against her mother And then in this moment, it's like they were doing reshoots or rewriting the script and they were like, oh, okay, well, yeah, let's make her angry at her mother for going into the into the Amazon while she was pregnant and then dying. Let's make this a thing two thirds of the way through the movie and then have her give this emotional moment when she realizes the truth. Let's all have this done. Like, let's establish this and and bringing it up with about 30 to 40 minutes left in the movie overall without establishing it at all in the first hour, hour and a half of the movie. It's that sloppy and lazily done. It's very, very frustrating. Um, also the guy, the spider person has the line that, uh, when like in my notes, I have the line and then I say, and then I put Jesus because the line is, uh, like basically, Cass is a, is asking like how to harness her powers or how to use her powers or or what power she has. And the spider person says, when you take on the responsibility, great power will come. And it's like, I just groaned so much at that because it's obvious like it's the great power comes great responsibility, but it's an inverse of that. It's a weird, goofy thing. When you take on the responsibility, great power will come. And like the movie feels like it, like it thinks that it thinks that it did something cool with that (laughs) when it didn't, it just lands so lazily and, and dumb. So anyway, the, the final kind of set piece in the, in the, Pepsi Cola Firehouse Warehouse, Fireworks Warehouse uh, is dumb. It, it pays homage to um, Final Destination, which I thought was kind of like sort of almost clever, but ultimately just it didn't work. And then the whole like denouement of the movie is Cassie becoming Madam Web in like the most stilted, awkward, like uh dollar store set of sunglasses <laughs> that she has where she suddenly like has harnessed all of her powers and she's still like taking care of these girls and she's taken on the responsibility and she now has the power uh and so she is gonna nurture these these teenagers to become spider women and she's going to be like their professor Xavier, which I assume is what it is uh in the in the comics and everything um <laughs> and that it just, it just doesn't work. Brent has entered the chat, uh, Brent of awakenthedark.com. He said, this is where my mom died and where you were born. (laughs) Like lines like that are just so scattered throughout this movie. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Um, so yeah, so again, I don't think they were legally allowed to name Peter Parker. And for some reason they decided to, um, to draw attention to the name Peter Parker throughout it without saying it, which was awkward and dumb, uh, throughout it. So that I think will be my spoiler review for Madam Webb. Um, I saw this on Sunday. I will forget about it by the time I hit publish on this episode. That's how forgettable and just listless it is. It's just, it's not a good movie at all. <laughs> um, and there are some elements of it that are, could be like, so bad it's good. But those are so few and far between because the movie is working with a script that doesn't feel like it is, that it has been written with any kind of direction. It is just so silly and dumb and weird. I didn't like it. So anyway, that's my review of Madam Web. It is currently in theaters. I don't recommend seeing it. I don't think that it's... That it's worth, like, seeing in the theater when it hits whatever streaming service it is. You might want to see it as a curiosity, but it's it's not good. It's not good. I ended up rating it one star on Letterboxd. Again, you can follow me on Letterboxd. slash obsessive viewer and that is my featured review for the evening um now i'm going to go into a probably non-spoiler review of players for a secondary review players is currently streaming on netflix as of february 14th and i'm going to play um a bit of the trailer before i go into my non-spoiler review for players Who is she again? That's Nick Russell. He's New York's most eligible bachelor. He's a war reporter. And he saved an actual orphan from an actual burning building. Was it burning? Collapsing. Sinking. Maybe it's just like a bad building somewhere. Mm. What's wrong with you? I might like him. Like, like him, like him? I'm 33 and I want an adult. Want this dude? Let's get him. We need to play, guys. What do we got? We've never played for keeps. Well then, it's Moneyball this shit, baby. I'm so hard for all of this right now. Literally, you're on day shift. Boob's okay? Yep, they're boobs. Find out where he goes, how he lives. Branigan, you're nice. Who's he seeing? What do he do for fun? If I didn't know any better, I'd think you were stalking me. <gasps> me? Can I see you on Tuesday? Tuesday can work. That's what we do. Okay, so Players is currently streaming on Netflix. Once again, uh, it premiered on February 14th. The premise, according to IMDb, is a sports writer unused unused to relationships uh, falls for a fling, leading her to reconsider playing the field in favor of commitment. Uh, director of this movie was Trish Sai or C, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, uh, and the writer was Witt Anderson. The cast includes Gina Rodriguez, Damon Wayans Jr., Tom Ellis, Augustus Prue, Joel Courtney, Lisa Koshy, and Ego Nwadim. Uh And yeah, I have a review of this movie on ObsessiveViewer.com if you want to read that. But yeah, this is the type of movie that I... Usually gravitate toward. It's a rom com that's kind of a modern rom com. Um, it's the type of movie that I think in my like like ten years ago I would have been a little bit more receptive to, and that's specifically because the movie is built around this core group of friends who they orchestrate or they 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 gamify one night stands in New York City nightlife by constructing these. Plays where they see someone at a bar and they decide to manipulate them into sleeping with them, uh, into one member of their gang. Um, and the whole crux of the movie is that when Gina Rodriguez uh, falls for Tom Ellis, who is a very, uh, a very high profile, like world writer uh, journalist, um, she and her friends decide to run a play to get him into a serious relationship with her because she quote unquote, like, likes him. And that's where the movie kind of falls apart. And that's why I think that maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have been a little bit more into this movie because, and and also I think that the movie would have worked better then because it feels very much in line with like the heyday of um, how I met your mother. And even then, like How I Met Your Mother, uh, d- the finale was in 2014. The entire like setup of that, the entire Barney Stinson character was a manipulative, like womanizing, uh, manipulative pickup artist. And the whole series very much like endeared him to the audience while also poking fun at the ridiculous stretches that he would go, or the ridiculous lengths that he would go to to sleep with women. Um, in one night stands and that show for all of its faults and the terrible finale and everything for all of its faults and the finale um, it humanized or endeared that character to the audience over several seasons and built him into a character who was wildly insecure but also very damaged and very much uh, like a he- like healed throughout the course of the series into being a more monogamous person um, and then the final season just shat all over it. But anyway, what this movie's doing, what players is doing, is taking like the log line of what Barney Stinson was and just creates an entire an entire movie around it, which doesn't work, especially now in like a more progressive era of like I don't know, our culture. Um, but it just it also doesn't do anything. Of substance with that playbook aspect of it. Like this movie is 100% a How I Met Your Mother plot line. And what's crazy to me is that while the plot line is completely derivative of How I Met Your Mother and built around like How I Met Your Mother on its kind of surface, on, on its bare bones, how I met your mother also had like a continuation series, like on Hulu, how I met your father ran for two seasons. And when they did that, that was like within the last two, three years, they noticeably excluded like any of like the pickup artist, like hookup culture aspect of it. It made it more about relationships and more about like actual, like caring about people. And so like, even, even in the grand scheme of things, like How I Met Your Mother, like the How I Met Your Mother universe knows that that's not good now. And like this movie is just not understanding that. So uh, that's a long winded way of saying that this movie isn't good. It's not like morally reprehensible or anything. I ended, I ended up rating it two stars, but basically the problem with it is that it initial, it, it um, uh, it initially introduces this core group of characters to us by showing them running a play so that one of them can hook up with someone. And then from there, we get her doing that to her neighbor. Like basically it's using manipulation to, to, um, to convince people to sleep with them, which feels like an antiquated thing these days, but what do I know? So then, from there, the more egregious part of it is that the main thrust of the plot is that they are running this scheme to get this man to fall in love with with Gina Rodriguez's character, or not even fall in love with her, just to notice her so that he will ask her out again. Um, because they they successfully hook up, and then she has feelings for him, so they work to manipulate him into a relationship with her, which is gross, and of course toward the like in the like the big turning point of the plot is that they don't they're not compatible and there's there's a whole other thing I won't get into since this is non-spoiler but it just doesn't work it it really doesn't work for me and it just felt very gross and when it gets into the more conventional like romantic comedy thing that you all know where it's leading but I'm not going to say anything about it but like when it gets into a more cliched uh romantic comedy uh spread it doesn't it it doesn't feel like it's a genuine avenue to get us to that point. And when you get the kind of big, successful end of the movie, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't. It doesn't land with the emotional oomph that the movie thinks that it does. Having said that, even though I am sort of dragging this movie slightly, um... In a weird way, I would see more of these characters together. I know that that's contradictory to the entire thing that I just said about this movie, but I kind of liked the chemistry among like the group of like four or five people. Um and how like they brought in like one of the assistants at the newspaper that they work at to bring her into the fold into scheming to get Tom Ellis uh, to hook up again with Gina Rodriguez. Um, and like, it, the the chemistry and energy of this group is really fun, despite the plot being very, very bad in terms of like, not reckoning with the fact that they are using these manipulative, gross, tactics to manipulate someone into having feelings for another person. Like there is nothing there's nothing in this movie that serves as a redemption or or um uh, pointing out how gross and inappropriate it is. It's just like they just they do it and it's fine. This is just the way the movie is. And it's just it that left a poor taste in my mouth, but despite that, I kind of like the characters as a group as as a central group. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I think that could, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would see a sequel to this because this movie was that bad. Um, but I would, I would see these, these actors together again, cause they were a pretty solid ensemble in a pretty terrible, uh, pretty terrible romantic comedy. Uh, movie. So I think that that's all that I've got for players. If you want more, uh, check out my review on obsessiveviewer.com. And so now I'm going to wind down the episode with a quick potpourri section, which I'm going to play myself into at this point. So uh, here's a little stinger for potpourri. tell me I view obsessively. So Potpourri is the section of the podcast where we wind down at the end of the episode and we basically uh, share thoughts about things that we've watched, things we're looking forward to, anything we want, as long as it smells good. And what I've been doing in recent weeks when I've had a guest or like my co-host Tiny, uh, I have been doing like a thing where I will try to watch a movie from whoever I'm podcasting with. From like their top rated movies or top yeah top rated movies on Letterboxd or wherever uh, that I have as a blind spot, and so since I'm here alone tonight, um, which is not truly the case because I got pizza right next to me and the people in the chat, um, but uh, since I'm doing a solo recording of Obsessive Viewer, I decided to dive in to a list that I've had on Letterboxd for a long time that I haven't used as like a watch list or anything. Um, but basically, I have a list on Letterboxd that is movies I own but haven't watched or rated yet on Letterboxd. So what this is, is that I have amassed a collection of movies over the years. A lot of times that has been like the physical collection has been kind of cannibalized a lot because I've sold a lot and gotten rid of a lot. But there are several movies, I think my list is at like a 100 and some at this point, that are movies that I own either digitally or physically that I have either never seen or I haven't rated on Letterboxd. So there are plenty of movies that I've watched many years ago before I started tracking movies on Letterboxd and actually rating movies. So I own them, just haven't watched them since like high school, or since like over 10 years ago, or whatever. And so, what I did was, I decided to throw on um, uh, Harakiri. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that because I actually don't know how to pronounce it because I keep wanting to say Harry Carey, but I know that that's not right. Uh, but Harakiri from 1962 directed by, uh, Masaki Kobayashi, uh, writers were, uh, Yasuhiko uh, Takaguchi and Shinobu Hashimoto. Uh, it stars Tatsuya Nakadai, uh, Akira Ishiyama, uh, Shima Iwashita and Tetsuro Tanba. Um, It is a Japanese movie, if you couldn't tell. Uh, The premise, according to IMDb, is when a ronin requesting seppuku at at a feudal lord's palace is told of the brutal suicide of another ronin who previously visited, he reveals how their pasts are intertwined and in doing so challenges the clan's integrity. So I had seen this movie once before. Um many, many years ago when I was a teenager, an obnoxious teenager who like, oh, I discovered Kurosawa and discovered samurai movies. So I wanted to watch as many samurai movies as I could. Um, One of them was Harakiri, um, which again is directed by Masaki Kobayashi, who is not Akira Kurosawa. (laughs) So uh, he's a contemporary of Kurosawa and he made this and he's made a, he's, he made a several other movies, of course, but one of them that stands out is Samurai Rebellion, which is phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. I watched it, I think in 2020. Um, it's, it's fantastic, but Harakiri is like, I believe it's kind of noted as being sort of his masterpiece. It is, um, it is a very, very good movie. It is incredible. Um, the entire movie is this non linear thing where we are introduced to uh, uh, Motome, who goes to the house of Iiyi uh, uh, to request that he be able to perform Harakiri, uh, which is disemboweling himself with a sword and then having his head chopped off in a ritualistic suicide thing because he is in dire straits. He's at a point where he can't. He can't afford food or housing or anything. He is someone who is living in peacetime. He is a warrior living in peacetime. And in that peacetime, people like the the samurai people are without work because they're not needed and clans are being dismantled. It's in feudal Japan. It's like clans are dismantled and they are not being hired on retainer as warriors or anything. And so the introduction of this, like the... The whole setup of this first guy going to uh, the place and requesting to, uh, to perform Harakiri, it's communicated to us that there have been others that come to do that with the expectation that they won't honor that, and instead they will take pity on him, or they will offer him like they will see like his integrity and offer him a job in that, in that clan. And so what happens? is that they believe that Motome is doing that and they decide to go through with him doing harakiri And when it folds back to, um, I can't remember the main, the main guy's name now, <laughs> um, but I'm going to discreetly look it up real quick. But when it comes back to that and he tells the story about how he knows this man or he knows about him, we then get this incredible backstory with um, this very tragic story of how he's connected to uh, to the other samurai. So Han Shiro is uh, the second guy who arrives and Motome is the first one who committed Harakiri. So when Han Shiro is basically telling his story to the people at House Igi he is doing so in a way that is basically showcasing that he has like he holds all the cards in this story he holds all the cards and it's like he's doing this manipulation thing where he is he's creating these circumstances where where he's going to maybe get the upper hand or something is going to happen to drastically change the nature of this clan that he is that he is in who did uh who did matome so wrong and and he's going to get justice for for his death and the way that it unfolds is such a a rich like uh a rich rumination on the ideas of honor and sacrifice and what it means to hold this like code within you and how big clans in this world are like are not honoring this, like this samurai code and they're not, they're not standing up for what they are supposed to, or they're not believing in the things that they're supposed to. There's a lot of like things that can be mined for, from it in terms of subtext and that can be applied and uh, applied to like present day uh, things because there's a lot of like discussion about poverty and, and, Uh, other things of that nature and living in destitute uh, destitute conditions and being like pushed to the brink being pushed to such a point where you feel like you need to take drastic drastic action just to survive it's just it's it's wonderful and the movie holds back holds back any kind of um sword play action there's uh, a little bit of that here and there but when it when it gets to that it is so emotionally like heavy and resonant and it's filmed incredibly well it's fantastic like there's something to that style of of depicting sword play especially in like classic japanese cinema where because the swords are so damn long like they're huge swords they need to fill the frame in such a way. And the way that, uh, Masaki Kobayashi does that has like a lot of like tilted angles and just to fit the swords in a frame. Like there are a couple of duels, um, that occur in the movie that are filmed so interestingly because they need to fill the frame to fill the entire, the entire sword from, from tip to hilt, uh, in the frame. And, it does it and it's it's very engrossing. It's it's very good. And the duel, like the actual camera work of the duel um and the in the sword play is, is really well done. Um so I highly recommend Harakiri. I own it on DVD, but I actually watched it on Criterion Channel, so it is available on Criterion Channel. It might also be available on Max, but I'm not sure. But I highly recommend it if you're interested in classic Japanese cinema, feudal Japan uh, depictions and samurai stories. I definitely recommend Harakiri. Um it is available on uh, Criterion Channel. And also I highly recommend Samurai Rebellion because it's freaking awesome and it plays with some similar themes or it the way that Kobayashi seems to take to like samurai storytelling is to examine what it means to be an honorable or dishonorable samurai. And so like Samurai Rebellion is about a uh, a family, I th- I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's basically like someone who uh, is done wrong by someone. And he basically tries to um, do better or <laughs> get revenge. Uh, here we go. So Samurai Rebellion is from 1970 or 1967. Uh, it also stars Toshiro Mifune, um, which he's legendary legendary uh japanese actor uh the plot summary is the mother of a feudal lords only heir is kidnapped away from her husband by the lord the husband and his samurai father must decide whether to accept the unjust decision or risk death to get her back so it plays with a lot of these uh themes of like honoring who you're who's in charge of you and like i don't know uh those kinds of things similar to Harakiri, which is about honoring like the code that you align yourself with and, um, and, and not making a farce of it. So, uh, so that is my potpourri Herakiri, uh, it is on, um, Criterion channel, maybe on max too. I'm not sure, but definitely check it out. Highly recommend it. And uh, and yeah, that will just about do it for this week's episode of the Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you could, please rate and subscribe, rate, review um, on all of the platforms, uh, Apple podcasts, audible has ratings, uh, Spotify. I think you can rate it too, um, and share the show with people. And also let me know what you thought about this live stream thing, because I've been live streaming this and I feel like now I'm a little bit comfortable with actually talking (laughs) like with a camera on me. Um, uh, but yeah, but I don't know even yeah, So I don't know. Let me know what you thought about this. I might do it again at some point. Um, and maybe actually make it look good. I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah, rate, review the podcast, all of that stuff. Uh, check out my reviews on obsessiveviewer.com. Also subscribe on, on YouTube at obsessive viewer. And, uh, uh, we got feedback. Nice page says live streams are always fun. Nice. Uh, so, we'll probably be doing more of those then. So next week on the podcast, I am going to be, I think, I think on the docket for next week is it was going to be Dune 2, but that's going to have to be the next week because uh, I won't be able to see it until next Thursday. So next Thursday on the podcast, I think I'm going to be reviewing Drive, Driveway Dolls or drive away dolls. Um, I can't remember, uh, what it's called. It's the Ethan Cohen movie that's coming out. Um, and I think the, the secondary review is going to be for bleeding love. Uh, that is tentatively on the schedule. We'll see where, Uh, We'll see where it lands and everything, but uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, I'm going to start playing myself out. Uh, Once again, thank you guys so much for listening and uh, check out Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, where I post a whole bunch of stuff. I'm currently doing Flanagan Fridays. I just reviewed the episode Two Storms of The Haunting of Hill House, which is a freaking masterpiece of television anything so check that out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer uh thank you guys so much for listening and i'll see you next week and now enjoy this short clip from our patreon exclusive feed for this and more exclusive content join our patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer uh, he arrives late after um after uh luke and steven arrive when he arrives this show does something just like it 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 does it twice in this episode, and it's it kind of breaks me a little bit. Um, when he's in the room, the camera spins around, and then we see from presumably from his perspective that his kids are his kids. They're the young actor versions of them, and then the camera spins around; and they become adults again. And then when he goes to the casket and sees Nell, he sees her as a, as a child, in like that again, the technical achievement is amazing. Just the fact that they can do that all in one continuous take, have everyone set on their marks and, and do like do it all in one fluid motion is really impressive on a technical level. And I would be very curious to see like a documentary or or behind the scenes or what have you about this and see how it was done. I know that there's videos out there that shows um, the behind the scenes, but Once I'm done with uh, Hill House, I'll probably go back and watch some stuff and probably watch this damn show again, because it's just, again, it is a masterpiece. It's incredible. Thank you for listening to the Obsessive Viewer podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Matt Hurt. If you have feedback, thoughts on our reviews, or just want to connect, you can email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. For more information on all of our shows, including a full archive of our episodes and show notes, plus plenty of written reviews, visit obsessiveviewer.com. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a follow on social media and subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. Also, consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible to help increase our visibility and help grow our community. If you want to support the show and help keep us going while getting early access to new episodes, as well as a steady stream of exclusive content, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Our theme song is A Little Mad Sometimes by As Good As It Gets. For more of their music, check them out on Spotify and at asgoodasitgetsmusic.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.